world is full of complainers. The fact is, nothing comes with a guarantee. Something can all go wrong. Was it? Your husband. The more I think about it, the more irritated I get. I got a job for you. It pays right and it's legal, I'll do it. It's not strictly legal. Pays right. I do. You want me to kill him? Hold it, hold it. So much driving sin. They come charging in here, scaring me half to death without even telling me what I'm supposed to be scared of. The less you know, the better. Nobody knows you hired me. Hope you're planning on leaving town. I want to have a word with you. You better make sure he's dead. If he ain't dead, he's gonna get up and try and kill you. Welcome back to a brand new edition of Reconcinimation. I'm your host, John Diner. I'm David Munchak. I'm Brent Hutchins. And this is the podcast that takes a look back at some of our favorite films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And, you know, we couldn't let 2023 go by without a little little bit of Noir-vember. So we, uh, you thought, everyone listening, you thought we weren't going to do it. We did. What do we have this month? We had... Chaplin, we had broadcast news, but no noir. No noir. No noir. Very depressing. Until David, now. did you want a no noir, no noir vember? Is that what you were hoping for? <laughs> uh I don't I might I might have advocated for that. I don't remember. I'm fine. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, yes. <laughs> theme month, two theme months in a row is a little much for me. Yeah, it's well, well, we're we're working one in now. So uh, I keep well, pitching, I keep pitching every month needs to be a theme month, and it just keeps getting shut down. David is <laughs> a hard hard stop. I'm I'm t- I'm uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> he likes variety. He likes variety. I like changing it well, up. Uh, so is, are we, is this, is this the one? This is, this is the big one. This is, this is the big if one. We're, yeah. If we're going to do a, no, a noir Vember movie, why not start here? Yeah. We're going to do start, it here. Start and finish. <laughs> exactly. <Goodbye>. Yeah. <laughs> a, a one episode loop of uh, noir, but yeah, we're going to go. It's actually neo noir, which we've covered a little bit before, but we are going to look at the Coen brothers, Number one, Blood Simple. And I'm mm-hmm. very excited to do that. Love talking Coen Brothers. Uh, we've done it. We've covered Fargo. We've covered Hudsucker Proxy, which you can listen to in the archives. But we are now bringing in, which we should have done before, but we're doing it now. We're oh, bringing yeah. in our, our resident director, 
of the Coen Brothers Historical Society. It's Jared Burt coming back. Hello, hello, and thank you for having me once again, gentlemen. I'm always available to talk Coen Brothers. <laughs> thank oh, God. And have we've, thank you. Well. <laughs> we've been we've been just meandering through these Coen Brother movies up until this point. So it's good to have you as a guiding rod here, Jared. That's uh gonna oh. save us. Okay, but before we dig into that, let's let's uh, go back to mm -hmm. our our segment, six degrees of reconsideration. David, you're gonna you're gonna throw out a movie title that we are by the end of the episode gonna try to connect to in as few moves as possible. Wonderful. What do you, got well, for us? you know, I like playing this game and uh, including the year, the same year as the movie the movie we're starting with. So. Uh, I'd like to see if you guys can connect this back to that classic 16 candles with mm. Molly Ringwald mm -hmm. and, other, and okay. others. So good luck. <laughs> Molly Ringwald and co. And blood simple with Dan Hedaya. So okay. good luck. All right. So we'll I circle make this... back at the end of the episode and, and uh, see how we do. Yeah, awesome. I like making this this segment as painful as possible. <laughs> Not, I, don't I don't know, know if this is it. I don't know if that's difficult. I just, uh, you know, I, I didn't I didn't want to go too popular. Yeah, something too. We'll, big. we'll, uh, we will figure out a path for sure. So, all right, stay good tuned, everybody. But David, um, tell us, run down the plot of Blood Simple for maybe some of those who haven't seen it in a while, forgot what it was, or they've never seen it before at all. Sure, Blood Simple's pretty. Uh, easy to t describe, not simple. Uh, it's written and directed <laughs> by the uh, uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen, the Cohen brothers, as they become to know. And uh, it takes place in the greatest state of the United States of America, Texas. Yeah. Uh, and it features a Texas bartender who is caught up in the marital problems of his boss uh, and the boss's wife. And they start a love affair, which leads to the boss. Uh, in a gentlemanly way, you know, vaguely trying to kill and threaten the guy and the wife. And then a private investigator gets involved and he's hired to kill these two. And the investigator has his own plot and agenda in mind. And it just leads to a lot of uh, confusion and almost kind of uh, surreal thrills. Shenanigans. Shenanigans, Shenan if you will. <laughs> yeah, that it does for sure. Uh, okay, Brent, bring us back to January 1985. What uh, it's our a time capsule? What was happening then? All right, January 18th, 1985. Well, oh, Ronnie Reagan was president, so that's exciting. We all know how much we love Ronnie, or not. I don't know, but. Also at the time, Madonna's Like a Virgin was the number one song. Uh, other popular artists at that time as uh, uh, were Tears for Fears, AHA, Foreigner, and Wham. Popular Nothing TV but show. the best. Nothing yeah, but dude. the best. I was looking through that list and I was like, this slaps. This is the best. This is the best. That's, this, that's the cassette tape you need to have playing on repeat constantly over and over again. <laughs> Is is one with Aha Foreigner and Wham. Yes. Uh popular Mixed TV tape. shows. This is this was John's Wheelhouse 1985 TV series, Miami Vice and Dallas. Top shows of the time. Crazy. I know John just loved I think that those. was the dream season of Dallas. I think oh. that was right right around there. 
my favorite. Um, kids at the time are watching uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and Voltron. They're playing with Speak and Spell, Pogo Ball, and My Little Pony. Uh, favorite video games at the times were uh, Space Invaders, Donkey Kong, and Tetris. Also in 1985, uh, that's when the song We Are the World was released, which if uh, I don't know if you guys remember or not, but that song was basically they got all the best and most popular talented singers of the time to get together and sing a song to bring everybody together to make money for uh, to help, I think, pay for or 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 contribute to food and and famine relief in Africa. So uh, I know ultimately they raised like 60, 70 million dollars and 90 percent of it apparently was pledged. That's to all relief. I mean, at the time, yeah, but it's that that equates to like $170 million I, now. So I'm kidding. So that's pretty good for a song. So. Well, little little known fact, just peek behind the curtain. That's our warm-up song that we do before we start recording. We just go Damn through right. the entire song. Damn right. The group of us. We watch the video. We're all we're all kind of huddled around the microphone together. Yeah. Uh arm in arm, hand in yeah. hand, even in Smiling. some cases between John and I. Just can't. <laughs> Unfortunately, ourselves. it doesn't do anything important for the world when we do it, though. Just us. But it makes Just me us. feel Just... good. <laughs> uh, That's right. 1985. I mean, a lot of other stuff happened, but there's your time capsule for for the show. Lovely. Let's go back to when the first time we we kind of knew about Blood Simple, whether it fell on our radar or we saw it. Uh, Jared, let's kick it off with you. Since you are Mr. Cohen Brothers, which I'm going to talk a lot about, but uh, when did you see Blood Simple? I saw Blood Simple the week after I watched Fargo. Um, back when I was younger, in my younger years, uh, I, I we had a subscription to Entertainment Weekly, I want to say, my brother and I. And Fargo was like the shit. Everyone was talking about it. It was hitting the festivals. Everyone loved it. You know, I came from a small town in New Mexico. We did not have an art house theater. We had a Cinema 5, and it just played big movies. So you'd have to drive to Cruces. Well, my parents aren't driving me to Cruces to watch Fargo. Like, no way. Um, Cinema 5 is where we attempted to see Stigmata, correct? Correct. We did see a portion of Stigmata and then (laughs) bailed after about 10 minutes. Yeah. (laughs) That is true. Good memory. Stigmata. Um, So... At, at our former uh, video store, Hastings, John remembers, um, oh. we it was a two-day rental, Fargo was. I rented it. I watched it all three days. So I watched it Friday night when I, and I, I think it had to be returned on Sunday. I watched it Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, or maybe Friday, Sunday, whatever. I watched it two to three times. And I was like, man, this is like, incredible. What else have these guys done? Looked up their whole you know what whatever they had out at the time up to that point 96 and um i had seen raising arizona but i didn't really remember it and i was like oh i should check out this first film they did so my brother and i went and rented it that week and i swear we watched blood simple like multiple times in that first week so that's the night when did fargo come out 96 i want to say is when i saw blood simple yeah is when i saw blood simple awesome uh and and you've seen it only one other time since (laughs) <laughs> one million yeah. all right cool uh brent what about you when did you catch blood simple the first time i saw this movie I, this is gonna sound crazy 
I, I honestly have no recollection of seeing this movie uh, prior to watching it for the podcast, which seems wrong to me. But if I saw it, I definitely don't remember seeing it with you guys uh, the 47 times that you watched it uh, when we first got to school. I seriously doubt that I saw it beforehand because I wasn't quite on the, the Cohen train yet. Like, I mean, I loved raising Arizona and and some of the movies that I had seen, but I hadn't really put together their entire library. So I think that this is the first time I saw it. Uh, I definitely do know, and this is a little embarrassing is that for the longest time I used to get this movie confused with shallow grave. And I don't know why, but for whatever reason, like I just I always kind of associated the two as one thing. There is a shallow uh, that- grave. No? Yeah. What's that's that? Danny yeah, Boyle. There is a, right? there is a shallow. It is Danny Boyle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, I think Danny Boyle's first. If I, I don't know if that you'd have to fact check. One me, of his earlier. It's one yeah, of his very one of his earlier ones. ones for sure. Yep. Yeah. 1994's so, Shallow Grave. Yeah. And so that may have played some part in my, in my maybe thinking I had seen this before, but not having seen this before. So yeah. First time watch. And, uh, I'm glad I finally got around to it. It's really good. So that's uh, I'm that's amazing. To talk about it. That's amazing that you went. We all went through college together, and you had never watched it. it. You know, I'm amazed every day with the things that I have failed to do in my life, even though I've had the opportunity to do them. So <laughs> this might be a surprise to you, John. It is just freaking Tuesday. But let's go. Let's talk about this one. Uh, great. Uh, well, I, I didn't go to college with any of you, so therefore there was no chance I was going to see you this. Did, and... it was, you were there in an honorary fashion. It was like, <laughs> yeah. spirit it was spirit. as if you were there. Yeah, sure. Uh, no, this first time watch for me this week. Um, ha- definitely have a lot of gaps in my knowledge and of, of filmmakers that came up in the last four decades. So this was a first time watch this week, and it's exciting to talk about it with some experts. All right, half and half here. This is amazing. Yeah, yeah. I um, I didn't really know about the Coen Brothers. Kind of the same until you, Jared. Like I'd seen, I'd seen Raising Arizona as a kid. I like. I remember watching the trailer for Miller's Crossing and saying, "I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna watch that movie." They're all like, they're not Italian. Like gangster movies are Italian. So <laughs> that was my like eleven year old brain. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And then I think I saw Hudsucker, didn't care for it at the time. And then Fargo came out. And I remember just like on like a Wednesday night grabbing one of my friends and we went to uh uh our local movie theater and there's like three people in the audience and the movie blew me away. Like I I had just gone through my Tarantino thing. So I the reason I went to see it was was because of Buscemi and I wanted to see any Anything that any Tarantino actor was in, I wanted to see. So um, fell in love with Fargo, started to learn about the Coen brothers, but I didn't go back and really get into anything until arriving at college, at the College of Santa Fe, RIP. And when I, Jared and I befriended each other, then you, you sat me down and we watched all the Coen brothers movies to that point, which was, I think, yeah, this is before, right before Lebowski came out, that... You know, we watched yeah, them all in yep. order. Yep. At the time, there wasn't a ton either. I mean, there was what 
full button. It was like five happening right now. Bart, yeah, five or six. You've you've mentioned all of them thus far except for Bart and Fink. So I'm just going to throw it out. Yeah. Yeah. So three, four. Yeah. That was uh, Fargo was number six. I can't count, guys. (laughs) This isn't a math math podcast. (laughs) Not yet. Fargo was six. Slowly getting there right now. I'm slowly getting equations thrown in there. That's what's like 1984. It's actually 1985. What in what order are these number are these movies from the cones? Our algebra podcast uh, is is a separate deal that we're we're just gearing that up. It's going to be hot in 2024. That's why I keep this trusty <laughs> abacus next to me so I can just slide. Anyway, but you know, we like coming upon the Cohen brothers like when we got to school. I think it was like the the right timing in our lives and as young, you know, burgeoning filmmakers and where they were in their careers, you know, really, I think at that, in my mind, like that was their peak run was like Fargo to Oh Brother was kind of the, in my, my personal opinion, like them at their absolute best. But, um, you know, I, I think they, the Coen brothers really impacted our generation and they're really important modern filmmakers that had a semblance of you know of films of the past right especially like noir and the wacky comedies that they used you know the old school comedies that they kind of reused in hudsucker proxy and uh taking a lot of devices from old older film uh genres and kind of reworking them and this is a perfect example of it obviously jared like the coen brothers in general were i mean totally changed your your career path right yeah i mean sort of that whole run from like 93 to 96 is what made me want to go to film school so um and in that time period i'd seen you know a lot of classics too like jaws and you know just before that it was all action movies and and i think once fargo kind of hit i was like no i'm definitely going to film school um yeah it totally changed my my thought process on what I should be doing or what I wanted to be doing in, in life. Like now when I, to this day, when I think of the Coen brothers or, or new Coen brothers movie comes out, like I, I just automatically associate it with you. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, what does Jared think of that? Well, I wonder if Jared's seen it. Is he the That's first the one same, there or <laughs> same, same here. Every time, every time a Coen brothers movie comes out, I'm like, okay, Jared, Jared's going to go see this. I was like, Jared. Yeah. If I need to know I if this is worth seeing or not, it. I should I should check I should check with Jared. Well, I don't know if you should because even their lesser fare, which I still kind of enjoy, I would see multiple times, and it's like, you know, it's not it. E- even those have a weird special place in my heart, just I think because of the time period and how much how much I was into them. You know, I still am. I just don't, you know, I don't have the. The, the the drive to like get out to the theater opening day anymore um but who, who does yeah they're yeah. they're they, they i would say that they are in the top three people that i will always check out and now that they're separated which is kind of sad i will still check out what it any anything that they do well they're you know two of and they're really i don't feel like there's in our lifetime, really, like they're, or spe- not, not not in our lifetime, but in the past twenty years, maybe, 
there's been fewer and fewer fewer directors that really have their their own distinct voice, their own distinct visual style that you can put a, their their movie on and know exactly like the, a movie on and know exactly who directed it. Like it, it just isn't filmmaking isn't that way anymore. And there's fewer and fewer people like the Coen brothers are one. David Fincher is one. Christopher Nolan is one. There's, you know, obviously Tarantino, but it's harder. Like Thomas harder. Anderson. Yeah. 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 But I think, I think in some cases, and I'm glad you brought up Wes Anderson and I've mentioned this before, but sometimes I feel like some directors become a little bit of a prisoner to their own kind of style and mm-hmm. shtick. Right. I think, I think Wes Anderson skirts the line sometimes. Tim Burton would be another one. <laughs> so, you know, I think he always he has a very distinct style, but at the same time, like I, I think it kind of is detrimental to some of his storytelling later on in his he career. just he he just got so into digital as well. I think everything's yeah. so digital and VFX now that before he, you know, I feel like he's practical stuff, but anyways. Well, it's yeah. it's that's the negative side of these auteur directors who have full creative control of their projects that they're either going to be great and brilliant or there might be a complete disaster when if there's no one who's bouncing against them a little bit. Um, and I think the Coen brothers have run into that, uh, you know, here and there as well. Um, looking at their general career path. Looking at those first eight films, which is from starting with Blood Simple and all the way through through Oh Brother, there's a very consistent tone, style, look that after that film, they start, you know, they're really cemented as successful filmmakers, respected filmmakers. So they have a little bit more pull and say with the studios that, which can be good and it can be not good sometimes. So some of their films after that were were misses. You know, the man who wasn't there wasn't as strong as a lot of the previous films. Intolerable Cruelty was a film they didn't really write. They took over. It wasn't really their project. It didn't really feel like one of their movies as much as the others did. Lady Killers, kind of a famous miss. You know, the, I do think parts of it are really funny, but overall, it's uh, not. Yeah, consistent. I think. I think for me, Lady Killers is the first one. I mean, I, I agree with what you said about The Man Who Wasn't There and Intolerable Cruelty. Not not as strong as some of the earlier stuff, but I think Intolerable Cruelty is pretty good. And uh, The Man Who Wasn't There, I think, um, is still really entertaining. But Lady Killers for me is like the first one they did where I was like, oh man, I, don't, I just don't even... Like, yeah, it was... It didn't, it didn't resonate, that one. Yeah. But then they had no, a huge it, it, comeback with. Oh, go ahead, Jerry. Yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say it. It it made me a little concerned after Lady Killers. I was like, oh, you know, even though I found bits and pieces of it funny, it's it's not the greatest movie. Um, clearly, uh, yeah. It, you know, and with the man, the man who wasn't there, it was still a co- like it was a Cohen movie through and through, like stylistically and yeah, and yeah, idea wise. Um, and and Intolerable Cruelty is a, is like John mentioned, it was basically a, a movie for hire. Like I think yeah. uh, Ron, Ron, Howard, who's Ron Howard's producer again, uh, Brian, Brian, Brian Grazer. 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 I think he was 
and they were doing something for him and he's like, no, you guys should make it. And I think they ended up making it you know, sort of in retrospect. I, I don't know the whole story, obviously. I, I think it was a, I think it was a Weigoff film that he left and then they kind of persuaded the Coens to take over on it. So got it. Yeah. Um, and you know, again, that, that film also has some very Coheny stuff in it for sure. Um, but yeah, that, that, that late when lady killers came out, I saw it in the theater with, my wife i was like oh man i really hope it's not going yeah. this direction full time well, i mean that's the thing like you start to have that fear right because lady killers i think was pretty much uh, i think fairly the majority of people agree kind of a dud and then they come out next with no country which is yeah. awesome but burn after reading is also great serious man is great true grit is great you know like well but, i mean yeah, no but country they, they is did next level no, but yeah no country is a huge comeback for them and you know an awards friendly movie that they got a lot of attention for and after that they were like now we're doing movies that we want to do which is why you get a serious man which is not a box office friendly movie you know it's no, very it's much great. just a movie they wanted to make yeah and same thing with burn after reading like i think both for the amount of star talent that's in burn after reading like you're gonna need a big hit just to pay for it um and then, well, and then right. they, they don't start have to get more experimental anymore, though, right like i mean right. they're like they're set like they can just exactly it's like it's perfect you know like that's yeah. wouldn't that be what every filmmaker is striving to mm -hmm. to get to like they've done it enough now that they like just the fact that they're attached to something means that they can do whatever they want and yeah. it might not be like a big box office deal but like none of these movies are really like huge budget movies either. You know what I mean? Like it's like low, low risk kind of, kind of budgets. They have a lot of talent in them, but I'm sure the talent is taking, you know, pay cuts to be in the Coen brother movies. You know, it's like, Very yeah, likely, I'm, yeah, I'm guessing, I'm guessing it's one of those. We just want to work with these directors because yeah. they're awesome. And they're interesting. Yeah. I do think though, even with, with, uh burn after or i mean um intolerable cruelty and lady killers i do have a sense that they still do what they want to do in some way shape or form like they're not making a movie i i feel like they make movies for themselves most of the time like i think you're you right. watch burn after Re you watch burn after reading and the the end of that movie is well you know what do we learn here I don't know. Well, but let me let me know when you when you find out. I feel like that's the Coen Brothers nod to the audience saying, "We're making what we want, guys." Yeah, almost it, in a to, weird way, you know. To me, it seems like it's phases, right? Like they first start out, they're making whatever movies they want to make, you know, but they're also trying to make a career for themselves. And then they get into this like spot where it's like they get to make the movies they want to make, and studios are finding them profitable, and it just happens to overlap at some given point, right? And then they yeah. just continue to make the movies that they want to make. And the studios, I think, are having a harder time like trying to figure out how to market them because, you know, like it's it's not a, it it's not the big box office draw that that, you know, I mean, is that really like, like a marble? Oh, oh, brother, where art thou? Correct me if I'm wrong, but that was one of their bigger money makers. Yeah. 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 Right. I, yes or no. Yeah. Yeah. And I so that like, kind of started the trend in a weird way, although they did Man Who Wasn't There After, which made no money, but... Right. Yeah. I feel like Oh Brother was... 
I don't I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I feel like it's the one that like most general audiences, at least at the time, I don't know, I don't know, you know, if you're gonna ask a younger person today, you know, that wasn't necessarily a film person, uh, if they knew about it or had seen it. But like I think when it came out, like it was the most kind of yeah, like you were mentioning, Jared, commercially successful, most recognizable, most like Had Clooney in it, you know. Yeah, most mm -hmm. like general audience digestible, you know, like. So, yeah, I agree. Well, there and there are always, you know, a lot of their films were winning awards. Like Barton Fink won won the Palme d'Or at at. Uh, was it I love that movie. Yeah, um, I don't know how many people saw it, but that movie's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And so there their studios do want that or did at least at that time. I don't know if they do it they care as much anymore. Well, it's, but... it's also we're coming this is around the time when the whole wave of like independent filmmaking in general was like the big popular like movement, right? Mm -hmm. So I mean they fed into that. Like they were, you know, they're very much part of that movement. And so, you know, I think yeah, there were a lot of studios going out trying to find up-and-comers that were telling character-driven kind of narratives and things like that. And and this was right at the right time. Like it was kind of a perfect uh storm of of their talent and what the what the studios and and, and audiences were kind of all looking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and even in their later years too, they you know, True Grit was another massive hit for them. So once once they come out with like a No Country, which is getting awards and bring in money, you know, then they can do a Serious Man. Then they do True Grit. Well, then they can do Inside Lewin Davis, and you know, these really kind of much stranger films and more uh, avant garde. But but um, back to Blood Simple though, like. For a first-time filmmakers, first first-time filmmakers, it's one of the most well-rounded first films that I've seen. You know, thinking about like the Bottle Rockets, you know, those those type of films where it feels like the director or directors are really finding their way still, and they're not. Yeah. A, it's not a fluid story. This is yeah. not that. It definitely doesn't have any of those like oh student filmmaker moments, right? Like where where you can in a in a lot of those movies, like like you mentioned, Bottle Rocket, like you watch that movie, it's a good movie, but throughout the course of watching it, you certainly get the sense that hey, this is a young filmmaker still trying to kind of figure out their storytelling process and how they want to to entertain audiences. This one, no, this seemed like it was done by seasoned veterans, right? Like there's no, there's, there's none of that in there. I mean, it, I was surprised uh, having not seen this until just recently and, and watching it now. Like I love it when I can find a movie that's great that I haven't seen <laughs> that surprises me. And this one is one of them because I just was, I was surprised that none of that was there and how well it was, was kind of put together. Mm -hmm. It's funny. Yeah. They, they would, they would probably say like, Oh, I see all the flaws in our first movie, you know? And I think they have they come do. out and say, Oh that, yeah. They, about blood simple. Yeah. But, but for, for us fan like fans or, or, you know, cinema lovers, you watch that movie. And for 
dudes who've never done a feature before and working with Barry Sonnenfeld, who's never shot a, a, a feature before and is nervous. And I hear he's throwing up during the shoot and stuff like that. It's like the visual storytelling and IQ that goes into this film is is incredible. I don't think we see it as much these days, even with new filmmakers who are very smart and 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 watch tons of movies and learn everything. It's like just the little push-ins to the face um, are are incredible. I was able to. My son was watching it with me, and I was like, "Oh, do you see this moment here? This is where he real. Or there, there's no dialogue, but this is where he realizes X Y Z." And he's like, oh, yeah, that's really subtle and and great. And so I just think the visual language and IQ that they have already in their first movie is pretty stunning. Mm-hmm. A first time filmmaking filmmaker film. Yeah, like there's lack of those tropes that, you know, I think like I if I think of filmmakers or film school people that are our age from what I had seen, I didn't go to film school, but I, I you know, I supported uh, other other people's projects and went to like you know, a showcase of, of them. And it's like, the tropes are like, this character's interesting because he smokes. Uh, there's there's an alarm clock uh, that has to get turned off or like, just like, you know, like these little shorthands that I, to me are tropey. They may not be, you may not even agree. You'd be like, what are you talking about? But like smoking was always like a big thing, but like there was a character who smokes, but it's, it's an interest. It's a, it's a perfect device, especially for this noir story. And it, right. it's not in like, and I love that. And like, there is an alarm clock in it now that I was thinking about it, but it is not, it's not like shot in that like way of like, this is the most interesting thing we're going to shoot and we got to make it look really good. No, it's just, it's part of the story. Um, but yeah, like there is such a, cohesiveness of a three-act story and that keeps the tension and keeps things moving without like let's do it like a really cool shot like let's like let's make this really cool or whatever there's that's you know they're they're a generation ahead of us uh as as filmmakers and everything but um it just i i really appreciated that same thing of like this is like a real movie uh just hitting a home run right out the gate really yeah well, it's good storytelling is all about setups and payoffs. And this yeah. movie is really, really good at it. You know, especially just using an example of the lighter that what you yeah, guys are lighter. referring to. The lighter and M. Emmett Walsh smoking. You know, that's set up a couple of times where you, you see him playing with the lighter. It's just putting it on your visual radar that you don't know. Yeah. The first, Especially the first time you're watching it, like you don't. It's a subliminal thing that like you're seeing it happen. You don't know it's important, but it, they're, they're focusing on it that so that Fincher, Fincher does in, that quite a bit as well. Yeah. Well, that's good filmmakers. That's part of what makes them good is that they can do that and have it work. Well, and this is what I found interesting about the lighter because they do it such a, in such a great way to set it up. But it, for me, like in my, in my, you know, I like to predict what's going to happen stereotypical uh movie viewer mode i i was watching it and i was like oh he left the the lighter i'm like that's the cops are gonna find the lighter and then they're gonna track him down and he's gonna get caught but no that's not what happens at all like it's not even like no one finds the fucking lighter but the guy's looking for the damn lighter, and that's what causes all this friggin' chaos and the and the third act and it's like oh my god dude like it it was great because it took me out of what would be kind of like a very sort of cliche, like, you know, it would be very easy for a first time filmmaker to take the cliche route of, of what that lighter is, but it, it takes a left turn and you're like, Oh, wow. 
that didn't go where I thought it was going to go. And this is so much better for it. Right. And so well, it becomes, it becomes the, the, the lighter and the photo, the photo is the real problem at, right. at a certain point. It's like, Oh, Oh shit. The, the lighter is like, okay, the lighter is a problem, but I don't know where the lighter is. We do obviously as an audience, yeah. but we know where the photo has been placed. And, um, and I think he does too, obviously, cause he's trying to get it back and he can't Yeah, going along with, you know, that those as storytelling devices is the actor's performances. And I, and I, I'm, I keep going back to bottle rocket as the example, but for a first time filmmaker that uh, it's Owen and Luke Wilson, who've become, you know, mega stars, but looking at their performances with, with Wes Anderson in that for, in that first film, it's very raw. It's very you know, it's not, they're not amazing acting performances and he's learning how to deal with actors here. Francis does not see queen. Francis does not Man. seem like a first time actress, you know, not I mean, all. and she, maybe, and she is by the way. Yeah. Yeah. She's I mean, so all of them. John, John gets and Dan Hedaya had not been around for very long at that point. And Emmett Walsh had, but uh, so you have that, but the other three are, are basically, either brand new or very near. I love how few characters there are in this movie because it really mm -hmm. helps you focus in on the performances of what characters you do have. And, and the, you know, like you're saying, they're all really strong. And to think that this is her first real go at it is like just sort of mind blowing. I mean, it, it just sort of like, it, it seems impossible that that that's the case but yeah you go and you look but then you, you know. see how great she is now and you're like ah yeah yeah, yeah. well she's I mean, she's it. another one of those actresses that has or actors that have really i don't think has ever had a miss as far as performance goes it's like gene hackman not every movie they're in is is <laughs> great you know there's a few welcome to moose ports and loose cannons out there but <laughs> but uh but they do a hundred percent every time I've been looking to rewatch Welcome to Mooseport for a long time. <laughs> uh, well, I'm just happy to like see a movie with Francis McDormand and three billboards that I actually liked. And I, I like this movie just did it for me. I, I was really impressed with that. Yeah. Because uh, I well, there was literally three billboards where he pulls over to Barry Dan Dea. And I'm like, and there's three red billboards. I'm like, oh, my God, yeah. Francis McDormand, full circle. Uh, but I was I didn't care much for that film uh, the the uh, the of the Ebbing's Missouri or Montana right. whatever it is yeah uh, and, but I just thought I thought that was like a real uh, the the poetry of that is so is completely coincidental uh, that you know she's featured in these these films with these well with I think Goldberg. that was her request that she, you know at a certain point she's like I I need to do another three billboards <laughs> movie so, yeah I need to be in a movie somebody write it, a script tie it all together oh, yeah. I, I think, I'm, oh, go ahead. No, well, I understand. And also I understand that three billboards, that's, that's something like that uh, in reality, you know, that's, that's a marketing mechanic. You would have them connected to each other. And so it's not uncommon or anything, but uh, I found that the fact that those were like sort of the, those red outstanding, like, you know, I don't know, mile markers in a sense for where that scene's taking place. Cause it's otherwise it's just a, you know, a, a tilled, tilled soil field in the middle of nowhere. Um, but it does have, and I thought maybe we'd be going back to that field or something, but of course, like all of my expectations are defied because this is, 
you know, I didn't know. Like, was we going to see him crawling out of the ground? Is he really alive? Uh, you know, with this factor in again. Um, so that that was just sort of like I, I, that visual thing for me kind of stood out. Uh, well, almost everything in the movie stands out, right? I mean, there's such very just good, interesting shots and um, good design um, all over this film. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, you know, and it is sort of a team effort here. It's not just the Coen brothers, but who've they, they've wisely chosen a, a really brilliant cinematographer, Barry Sonnenfeld. We won't talk about his directorial career. We'll just talk about his <laughs> cinematography. But uh, Carter Burwell's score and, of course, the cast, all of that combined is part of what makes this work so, so well. Yeah, and, and going and going with Carter Burwell, it's like, I I th- I mean, this is very similar to I mean, to a lesser degree than No Country, where they basically almost had zero music in the whole thing, or you know, the music that they do have in No Country is so limited or subtle that you don't notice it. This is very similar. There are lots of like fans whooshing, wind blowing. No dialogue. People breathing, yeah. no yeah. dialogue. Ambient, just ambient sounds. Squeaky yeah. floors. Like it is it is awesome, dude. And and to have the guts to do that on your first movie is pretty impressive because you feel like you need the music to really amp up the moment and stuff, and they don't they don't rely on that at all. Yeah. Um, it's used strategically I think it's gutsy. and really well. Yeah. Going uh, back to the actors, can I just say one thing really quick? Uh, yeah. John, I know when you and I watch this in college a couple times we were always like i we loved dan hedaya and emmett walsh and and you know the re- the rest of the ga- the guys and the crew in there francis and um we always used to say like yeah john gets he's kind of he's serviceable he's fine but man on on rewatch now he is so much better than serviceable i feel bad for saying that because that was dead wrong he is great and the, the scene yep. where we we were sort of texting about this, John, where he is uh he thinks that he's just buried a body for Frances McDormand and yeah. she's totally confused and he's trying to figure it out, but he's can you he's imagine like, like his brain is imploding yeah. and you can see it on his face. It's absolutely yeah. Can you imagine that the the head spinning? Like it is unreal, the confusion and just like instability in your mind that must be going on at that moment where where you know that is all playing out for you yeah i i agree with you jared i thought that he i mean i was not part of those conversations in college uh i may have partook if i were there but i would i would have come around after this viewing for sure because i thought that he did a killer job yeah phenomenal well yeah a killer job <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> Coen Brothers movies. You know, rarely. I'm going to come back to what you were saying in just a second, Jared. But Coen Brothers movies rarely give you what you're expecting. You know, you you what you think is going to happen, what the cliche thing is that's going to happen, quite often does not end that way. You know, characters get kind of surprising or really violent endings that you do not see coming, and it's almost in, you know. I don't want to spoil it in case anyone listening hasn't seen some of the later Coen Brothers movies, but in in most of their films, either the lead character or a you know supporting strong supporting character take like a, a drastic right turn and something 
happen, you know, happens to them that you did not see coming. And, and or, or like a bona fide movie star is like, right, ousted in the yeah, yeah. in a very shocking way. But yeah, um, yeah, and they're so good at, at doing that. And going back to John Getz, I agree with you entirely. I didn't. This was the only movie that he was in that I had seen for kind of a period of time. And then I saw The Fly and a couple mm-hmm. of other films that he's in. And he's complete, a completely different person. And that's when it dawned on me, like, oh, my God, his performance is so strong in this. I couldn't see him as anything but Ray. So I didn't feel like he was acting that much. But no, like his body language, the way he carries his shoulders, like John Getz does not look like that. <laughs> in his normal, you know, self, um, doesn't talk like that. It's a really strong performance. And, and you're right. That scene is so critical because he's had the seeds of doubt planted about what Abby is really doing. And if she's manipulated him and caused this whole situation, I mean, she has caused it in a way that, you know, she's, she's, uh, cheating on, on Julian Marty, which is Dan Hedaya with, with Ray and having the affair, which is what sparks the entire story. But what happens within that, she really doesn't do much. She kind of gets blamed and uh, Dan Hedaya sort of plants those seeds in Ray of like- Well, isn't that the the great, the great setup scene where he goes to the bar for his back pay and then the bug zapper's going off and, and in that moment, he just basically plants that little seed Oh, you you think she's only cheating with you, buddy? Yeah, get in line. She's cheating with everyone. <laughs> yeah, and then he immediately he spirals from there. The whole rest of the film, he's like, "Wait, is she? Is she not? Yeah. Did, did she kill him? And did I just bury this body for her? You know, it's like yeah, spiral city. Yep, yeah, and that that scene, the performance in that scene where he comes back after after dealing with the body is is really just fantastic. It's one of the, it's like one of the top three scenes in the movie. And the story is so tight that you don't see any that you don't see anything prior to him after picking her up. Like we don't know, we don't have any bias of the the marriage be, between Abby and Marty. We don't have any bias of what Ray was doing before she called and like what his life was like. And you know, and then but and he admits he has feelings for her. So we get everything we need to really set up the actual like thrust of the story without like having to set everything up it doesn't matter like well it does matter because if you did that it would be a totally it'd be a different story in the sense of what they're trying to present so to keep that noir neo-noir like um style like it's good you just get rid of all the fluff you just you focus on the facts of the case and and you're and the characters are figuring things out and you see the paranoia build or the you know the confusion or and and the, and their own kind of uh, uh, panic over what's happening. Like it was kind of it's supposed to be like really kind of easy, but everything spirals out of control. Um, mm-hmm. As as every Cohen as every Cohen brothers movie, like you said, yeah. like these these average people like find themselves in really intense situations, and, yeah. and it's masterfully done. And and they, and they do, kind of make you know, like all make dumb decisions. Yeah, yeah exactly. Always. Like they they do something that's gonna that they're gonna regret. You know that they're gonna get they're gonna get payback for later. Some something is going to happen to them, whether they did something innocently or they stole money or they you know they just did something that maybe isn't that bad, but it's gonna come back on them later on. That's definitely a Coen Brothers staple. 
but I think I think what you're saying, but cutting the fluff out, like absolutely, like this movie, they've they've trimmed all the fat off that that Brent was saying. There's 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 five actors in this movie, you know, yeah. <laughs> and the fifth one is like only in a couple of scenes and stays, you know, fairly distant from what's going on. Um, and then plus a Holly Hunter uh, voiceover and the, on the answering machine. So <laughs> you got to got to work yeah, that. That's... <laughs> uncredited but she's she's there in spirit yeah <laughs> but they did such a really masterful job of taking a, a noir film a noir story and like almost like cutting and pasting it cutting it from 1940s new york based you know or city based story and just moving it up to present day setting it in texas but all the all the storylines are the same, you know, that the detective that's hired to, you know, take photos who for, you know, whatever reason turns on the person that hired them and the couple having the affair and like all of those are uh, things that come straight from noir. And that going along with the visual style and the slow pace and the silence all just this is like one of my favorite neo-noir films and I almost and totally forget about it, but it'd been a long ten, time since I'd seen this. Yeah. And, and they do a, they did something interesting too, where they infused a little bit of a horror movie in there as well in this. And cause there are some set pieces that really feel horror movie, but not, I, I it, it's it's more grounded in reality in a, mm -hmm. in a way um, rather than some like supernatural Mike Myers or, you know, something like that. But, um, but I mean, I think that had to do with, you know, them trying to raise money to make this movie and all that jazz. So um, I think investors at the time were giving money for what exploitation movies and horror yeah. movies more so than, than something like this. Yeah. Well, they shot, you know, the backstory is that they, they shot, I think in 1982, two they shot a two minute trailer for what they wanted this movie to be which is a couple of scenes like it's it's the you know they're it's all kind of cross cut but it's the scene where uh he julian marty is buried in the desert or right leading up to where he's buried in the desert but the whole interaction around the car and that actor playing julian marty in the trailer is actually bruce campbell Mm -hmm. um, and then the you know the scene at the end where mm walsh's character is in the bathroom shooting holes in the wall to try and free himself and you know from francis mcdormand's perspective so man uh, i love that that it's brilliant dude stabs his hand into the windowsill like i'm like he oh, punches a hole in the wall fuck. it's like so yeah. it's so incredible so but good. but both of those scenes have horror elements that you know the so M. Emmett Walsh's character, which I just uh, Visser is that his name? Investigator Visser. So yeah. he comes back and betrays Julian and you know ends up killing him, incident and like forgetting he's leaving the lighter behind and that Julian has switched the photos uh, in the envelope. So he'll find all that out later. But after killing him and Ray comes back to the bar, he finds Julian's body right and all the blood and does a horrible job of cleaning it up when he 
with a windbreaker. <laughs> yeah, with a windbreaker that he's looking it's like, for. Like, what are later. you doing, bro? That doesn't suck any blood up. <laughs> like, you're just smearing blood everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then bringing the body to the desert, and then it's revealed that he's not dead. You know that he's now he's trying to deal with this this body, um, and the tension of that scene where he's dragging him and the cars headlights are coming and getting closer and any second that truck or whatever that's driving by is going to see exactly what they're going to see him dragging this body and he'll be caught but he get he get gets around the car like just in time and that burying and then he buries him alive and it's it's a sad scene i mean cuz julian like you see him he has a gun but he can't he's got a broken finger from earlier in the film and can't pull the trigger and it's this silence of him of of Ray just watching him attempt to shoot him and like doesn't really do anything and just slowly reaches out and pulls the gun away and that's like that's Julian's last hope is that that gun and then he's just prone and uh buried alive in a horrible ending yeah did i speaking Yikes. of a gun can can you help me out? didn't when she pulled out the box of bullets there was only a couple of bullets in the the box right it wasn't weren't those blanks or or were they just regular bullets <laughs> didn't it take blanks i thought they the were box? regular bullets i, I kind of i think i must have misinterpreted it I, and i didn't go back to check because, because i got confused i'm like wait when i thought there might have been like i thought a scene would be coming where you know a gun would be used but there's no bullets you know no live ammunition in the gun but i guess i was mistaken so that's just me being not paying attention you got to pay attention to these details <laughs> <laughs> and the uh the scene at the end where visser you know he kills ray um and so ray you know gets what's sort of what's coming to him or at least in the the world of a coen brothers movie he gets what's coming to him that he's hmm. he's going to pay for what he did really what he did to julian that because he did that that crosses a, a coen line that now he's going to have to pay for it somehow. So Maurice uh, is the only one that does not cr cross the the Cohen brother line. Right. He's like he doesn't the do only one say yeah. no. Yeah. He's he's just kind of caught in the middle of it all. Yeah, he's just running the bar. That's all he's yeah. doing. Um but yeah, that entire ending is done so well. The tension, the pacing of it, the um visually it's beautiful you know ray is shot from a sniper rifle from across the street and then uh and then visser you know comes into the apartment and queen francis outsmarts him right where she like lures him into the bathroom and as he's uh yeah and then stabs his hand through the window and and the way he becomes an animal the way he punch is punching that wall so like good. he he's mm -hmm. a beast yeah, he's he's they they are very good at creating these. I mean, obviously, with no country, you know, that's Cormac McCarthy, but their visualization or rendering of that character is just unbelievable. And and it same goes here for Walsh. He's he is despicable, I mean, creepy, and awesome. Yeah, yeah. It reminded me of you know, like it seems so feral, right? Like it reminded me of of you know, growing up, you hear that if an animal gets trapped in the woods or whatever, it'll like literally gnaw its own 
like foot off so it can escape. Like that scene where she stabs his hand uh, and traps him in the windowsill is like his performance reminded me of those stories that I'd hear, you know? And I, I, I mean, he was just so good. And I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I was like, is he going to pull his hand out? But I just couldn't even wrap my head around that feeling of, of he is stuck. Like there's no, he doesn't even have good leverage to hit the wall. Yeah. Like it's just, it's just powering through it. Yeah. It's but so, he finds a way and, and you believe it weirdly. Yeah. Like, you know, in a, in a movie, you're like, this dude's not punching through the wall with no leverage, but he's so freaky. I, but I believe, believe it's drive. It, yeah. No, I believe the wall. It, when he, when he shoots the wall and makes it weaker and, and puts holes in it, like, I absolutely do believe it. You know, like I, I, I feel like with the adrenaline and everything, like he could break it because those walls were thin and oh yeah, you know, I mean it's you know, but yeah, and it the was, beams of light coming through. It's oh, just, so it's, beautiful. Yeah, that's film noir through and through, right? The holes in yeah. the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was gonna say like relating to that that feral nature of of him and and like and it seems to be like the way they present these their characters and i think throughout their films a lot is like it's almost like a character can fit almost physically like doubles in size and is like like a like a devil and some characters actually shrink in size and become nothing and i think that's what happened to marty like you know by the time he's in the shallow grave he's he you know he was you know he was the mastermind of this little plot and it didn't work out and he's he pathetically dies and then uh viscer becomes this monster at the end and they're i mean th that's how i kind of sense it that energy it's it's like they're and then the other characters are right where they should be right where ray was and where abby was like they don't become they, but i almost feel a physical transformation yep. of of that like their size their imposing nature can or their diminishing nature uh it can is it is a constant with with because all these people are just regular people in these situations but they become more or less than they were yeah that so that like that's what i always seem to kind of glom onto with like their their films like and then you know and then like the fargo series that noah holly does like he takes he takes the the fargo-ness and the cohen-ness and he, he apply they apply it every season and do that same thing and it's i, I thought i'd be bored of that series um, but it's, they find, keep finding new innovative ways to do it. And, uh, I don't know, just continuing to do that, like taking regular people, you know, they're not, su you know, they're not super powered people or months or, you know, too complex. Uh, but then you get to dive in and, and they grow or, sh or, or shrink every time. I, I'm not sure. I, I know I'm rambling on this. I'm not sure exactly. No, what I'm I, saying. I you know? no, I feel no, like it, the, the no, end of the movie point. is it's a monster. They movie. do that in Barton Fink too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You're right. <laughs> it's it's. I mean, it is a monster movie. It's like the end of Halloween. It's it's the same thing that he's M. Emmett Walsh and is such an amazing actor, character actor that he does like he becomes animalistic and that you know like brent was saying and just desperate to get out of his situation that he, he it's almost like he's not human even though that is a very human thing he is is animal like and and that he's desperate and like he just seems like jason or you know michael myers 
Well, after he gets out of the the predicament, he gets the knife out of his hand. When he puts on his hat, he is like looking like the devil as he's walking yeah. towards the door. He yeah. there has been a change in him that there is no more effing around. He is going to rip everyone's head off. Yeah, yeah. And how great is M. Emmett Walsh just in general? Oh, I love him. He's a great actor. Yeah, he, he's, he's awesome. And he's still everything. going. He's still going, and. You still see him pop up, you know, here and there. And obviously he's much older now, but it feels like he's been around forever. You know, he was in, you know, I think the first time I saw him was in the late 60s or very early 70s. And one of the like Planet of the Apes sequels, he he showed the one where they go back in time. Yeah, they, they do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like uh, the turtles. Yeah, exactly. Turtles in time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they um yeah he's just such an amazing actor that he can be dark and scary like this or you know his brief role in raising arizona and a lot of movies like that where he's hilarious he's like an over-the-top comedy uh, he he can he has such a range and they they wrote this part for him wow so perfect casting <laughs> You know, you know, a friend of mine a while back broke his hand and put in a cast. The very next day he falls, protects his bad hand, and he breaks his good one. So now he breaks that too, you know? Fall. So now he's got two busted slippers. You know. So I said to him, I said, Creighton, I said, I hope your wife really loves you, because for the next five weeks you can't even wipe your own goddamn ass. <laughs> <laughs> That's a test, ain't that? Test the true love. I got a job for you. <laughs> oh, well, it pays right and it's legal. I'll do it. Going back to the development of it, so this was shot. They shot a trailer to raise money, uh, a two-minute trailer to raise money for the for the uh, uh, to do the feature feature version of it. They raised about 500,000 immediately. And then, you know, it took a while. It took all of, uh, you know, 1982, 1983, most of it to put all of it together. And um, finally they did and uh, opted, like I was saying, to take the story out of like the city, you know, environment and take it into rural, you know, Texas, really in that like spread out, real open, empty part of Texas. Uh, and I think that was just just a great element to to layer into it. I think it also benefited benefited them financially, right? I think there was they could do yeah. non union or something. I remember yes. reading about that at one point. Yeah, yeah, they could do. Yeah, they didn't have to pay union rates, and it was, you know, this wasn't you know owned by a studio, so well, not was... that you could skirt rules, but you know, it was just a different way of doing it. It was also an area that uh, Joel Cohen was familiar with because of his. Yeah, he. Yeah, he lived in Austin. I want to say. Yeah, he for, did grad, for a he year. Did grad school in Austin, so he was kind of familiar with the area, which I think also helped him know, like, kind of the right locations. Maybe he had some mm -hmm. connections with people at those connect at those locations. Yeah, and you can feel his uh, the the partnership that they sort of had at the time with Sam Raimi, uh, which which we mentioned on our Evil Dead 2 episode, 
you can hear that in the archives at reconsideration.com. Uh, but yeah, they were, they were friends. Joel was an editor on, on the evil dead. And I mean, there's, there's like two, there's two shots in this thing that are very Raimi. You know, there's the one like swooping into the front of the house or whatever at the, the beginning and the one where she's trying to kidnap her. Yeah. And then the one where she, uh, breaks out of her dream, you know, I'm like, dude, those are totally Raimi influenced moments but i immediately that's what i immediately thought absolutely and if you watch the the two minute you know trailer the fundraising trailer that's that's on youtube they do the like motorcycle shot that's all over the evil dead movies that Mm. they go it's you know when he's dragging him around the car they like come up behind the car and over the car and it's like oh god yeah they're just even on the bar right even in the bar when the guys like passed out and they're going down the bar and they go up and over and back down to the 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 top of the bar there they do it a lot in raising arizona too that that type of visual flair that Raimi uses uh, raising arizona i think is i want to say is their most visual movie there's so much moving moving camera and that and these crazy shots and cra- everything everything's crazy in raising arizona and extreme yeah it's and it's cartoon- cartoony i would say yeah, yeah. not unless how did they not make funny. a saturday morning cartoon of raising arizona <laughs> <laughs> how did that not happen <laughs> peewee's playhouse followed by the wacky raising, raising arizona <laughs> there'll be a talking car in that one you know or oh, yeah. something. <laughs> I would saturday it. morning sure. <laughs> my one of my favorite lines in all of cinema is in that movie it's when nick nicholas cage goes to the gas station looking for he's like do you have any of those funny uh shaped balloons and the guy behind the counter goes not less rounds funny it just yeah. cracks me up every time. It's, it's yeah. William so, Forsyth and John Goodman ask that as well oh, at the convenience yeah. store. I think yeah. they ask it multiple times throughout the movie. It is hilarious. <laughs> I love the last line in the movie, by the way, too, in in Blood Simple, how yeah. Fran does not know who she just shot through the, no through the door. Yeah. Like she's at the end of the movie, it. she still has no clue if Marty is dead or alive or right. She knows Ray is dead because she's just seen it, but she doesn't know about Marty. And she doesn't know about, um, and she doesn't know who is coming after, you know, who is doing this at the end. She's never even, I imagine the scene after the movie ends is her opening the bathroom door and seeing what she's done, but. No, she's like, who the hell is this? This is, this is what I think happens after, (laughs) after the last scene. I think she quickly runs to her car leaves town because she she thinks uh, that Marty's still alive. She ends up in Fargo, changes her name right. to to uh, Marge Grunderson. Mm-hmm. And 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 Fargo is uh, is a sequel to Blood Simple. I it's really changed her it. life around. <laughs> she could go, she could change her name. No one knows anything. No one, no one that she left in in Texas is gonna say anything. She just, she she changes. I mean, the movies feel so very similar to me, honestly. Like the, the tones and everything. Like oh, when yeah. I was watching it, I was, I was thinking, is Fargo kind of an un, is is it a secret sequel? They, they do have some similar dark comedy beats, you know, with with the his car isolated by itself out in the mm-hmm. out, you know, after he's buried a, a 
Danadea and the car won't start and you're just holding on it. You're like, uh oh. Yeah. But you're yeah. kind of chuckling too. It's like that scene with William Macy in the parking structure after he gets rejected by his father-in-law and it's like covered in snow and he's scraping it all by himself and he has (laughs) his flip out and then he goes back to scraping it, you know, and, and, and that's brilliant. And then of course the highway scene in the Fargo version, they actually do see what that he's carrying a dead body and they have to track him down in that one. So it's a, it's a little cool twist on the the moment. You're like, Oh, I already saw this, but then it's, it's totally new. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there is a lot of like shot for shot kind of stuff between Blood Simple and Fargo in particular, but it feels like Fargo and and maybe uh, No Country for Old Men are like the sister films of of Blood Simple. But that speaks to like dark, violent, mm, funny. Yeah, yeah, like a mix of all these genres. Even within this, like there, there is some dark dark you know humor in in uh, you know less in blood simple but i think there's a few moments like i, I mean i think mm at walsh's character up until that last scene like there there's some comedy in that guy like just who is this oh, guy dude. why is he hanging out when, with this young girl it's creepy. when he when he's telling him about the how you know basically marty's telling ray oh she's cheating on you too the bug zapper is going off yeah. and and then there's those great moments where people keep angrily leaving uh, Ray's house, but they go down the one-way street, and then they have to yeah. cut back the. Yeah, mm-hmm. that stuff's hilarious. <laughs> like that's Coen Brothers humor for sure. But all you know, they do such a good job of like building their the Coen the CCU the Coen Cinematic Universe that all these movies feel like they exist in the same world. Like like Brent, what you were saying. Yeah. You could believe that Fargo and Blood Simple are absolutely happening, you know, in the same in the same world, you know, ten years apart, but still, absolutely. Raising Arizona is the only one. It really is like a different because it, it is so such a straight comedy, and it's so um, kind of extreme that uh, it, it that one there are things about it that, that feel very different from the Coen brothers movie, but the overall tone still uh, is, is part of that world. I was going to say Hudsucker proxy is pretty zany too, but it has that darkness about it still. It's not as, yeah. it's not as like lighthearted in some way as, mm-hmm. as raising Arizona, even though raising Arizona has a couple dark elements to it, but it doesn't. It definitely feels lighter in some way. I yeah, think, than but some of the other Cone stuff. There is a heaviness to it, though. I mean, it starts with middle of a suicide, right? <laughs> like, well, Hudsucker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hudsucker. Yeah, Hudsucker is yeah. definitely darker for sure. If I see him, I'll be sure to give him the message. Was that the last line? Something like that. And he's <laughs> laughing as he's bleeding out on the bathroom floor. Oh man, yeah. so good. I love that last shot of the movie. Is so it's it's so brilliant that again that pacing that that patience right that you're just you know the action has happened and now we're settled into it and we're just watching it play out and he is bleeding out under the sink and after he says that he's just his focus is on the water dripping under the sink and you're just waiting for that last drop to fall off of the bottom of the sink and hit him and we we never even get that moment it's a That's great. That's right as it's happening. Yeah. 
Well, like, and it's like, it just, it goes back to like the, how, how banal and mundane is a leaky sink like that. But like that, this is the last thing a dying man is seeing after all this, this is like everything you worked, everything you did in your life, all the choices you've made, the, the, and then going to this murderous rampage and you, you've been bested by this woman that you're trying to kill. And that's, this is it. That's your final moment. And yeah. uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's humbling. It, it is. It's like, no matter, you, everyone dies alone. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's kind of that no matter what you, what you're doing and like, and it's, and you, there's no chance for like, we're not, they're not going to spend any time of him. These characters don't like necessarily think about the consequences of their choices. Uh, they just kind of go to the next thing and what, what, whatever their desire is or whatever their agenda keeps mm-hmm. fueling it. And like, you know, a, a really cynical, like feminists uh viewing of this movie is sort of like oh she is she's like she's like an unwitting like femme fatale like she you know she's the i guess the kind of the she she is what all the men are orbiting around but she has nothing to do with like anything she didn't she i mean yeah like the she had the affair the paranoia that's, that's she had the that's affair all she's done yeah, yeah the, but, the affair in, in on the flip side though dan hedaya does seem like a piece of shit so yeah, it's like yeah i don't blame her yeah so uh, yeah. yeah you're kind of like well i get it <laughs> yeah well, exactly like well you know yeah and she wants to leave her husband like she had to get away it didn't even it wasn't even like she was leaving him forever she just had to leave the situation and ray took her away we don't even know and we don't know why or whatever and uh so it's i think it's like i like that she's like an unwitting femme fidel. again like yes the whatever the affair does like um instigate the rest of the movie but yeah but she's not barbara stanwick in double indemnity you know she's right manipulating the characters you know manipulating the story she's sort of just like you said they're they're orbiting around her she's not manipulating them yeah uh just not communicating very well honestly everyone in this film (laughs) yeah well that's that miscommunications are very key in some of these movies. So yeah. Asher, Asher, after the movie, he's like 90% of movies wouldn't be made if people knew how to communicate better. I know. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's right. yeah. that's facts, what one of my sons facts. said the same thing. Like, well, if they just do this, like none of this would happen. And I was, I was like, yeah, but, and then you don't have a movie. So yeah. but that's mean, not yeah, the then, world then, that we're yeah. credits roll credits yeah. roll five minutes in. Yeah. Yeah. No, co- no country has that same sort of like bleak. The thing that you were talking about, David, is like these decisions. You know, Llewellyn Moth in that movie when he when he takes the money from the the botched drug, he knows what's going to happen, and he mm-hmm. does it anyway. Yeah. And then you know, obviously the whole the whole you know death incarnate almost Javier Bardem. You you just can't stop what's coming for you when you make these decisions, or if you right. don't make the decisions, you still can't stop what's coming for you. Yeah, it's uh, and, and yeah. At, at a certain point, the ball is just like released from the top of the hill, and even and probably no amount of talking is going to get you through it. Like, um, but I mean, I do wonder though. What if they just talk to the predator in the original movie? Like, maybe they could have 
figure things out instead of you know have to kill each other yeah uh, like my brother-in-law kind of sucks could you kill him instead you know, or, you know <laughs> yeah, whatever yeah. It is. i don't know i don't know i'm just making stuff up but if you want if you really want to hunt the best like the olympics are right around the corner <laughs> <laughs> they're primed athletes yeah they live in a little village you can just there's a lot them. of them there's a ton like, they're really fast <laughs> see what you can do uh, <laughs> I love, you know, I love the title of this movie too, because it's one of those that like you, you really, I think you have to research where it came from in order to like, it's not something that you could really pull from the movie. Um, and it comes from Dashiell Hammett's Red Harvest. And it's just, do you guys know what like the title kind of means, what they mean by it, what Blood Simple is? It's that spinning out that we we're talking about that John Getz goes through, right? Like... Yeah, yeah, it's it's that it's the illogical behavior that a character, you know, exhibits right after they've killed after they've committed murder or killed somebody. So yeah, yeah exactly mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, fa fascinating. I mean, you could have called this a million different things, but it was like, wow, yeah. they just pulled a name out of nowhere, you know. And they love those authors like Raymond Chandler and Dashiell. I know they they talk about yeah. them all yeah. the time. Yeah, and, and they more. they do such a good job of like bringing those noir elements, those themes, you know, betrayal, lust, greed, of and of course murder, and then then the cause and effect of it all that that we've kind of walked through a little bit already. But uh, you know, the, just bringing those over from those authors, you know, of the old noir films and modernizing it, and you know, we talked about um, we've we've covered Copland, we've covered One False Move. Again, check those out in the archives, reconcinimation.com. Uh, all do a great job of of bringing noir into the you know into the eighties, into the modern era. But this is like, I don't know. I think this is the the best example of it. This really like watching it this time, I could really see how noir it was. I, for some reason, it didn't really. I didn't just didn't look at it that way. I just looked at it as like cool coen brothers you know style but it's uh it's the exact model of what i think neo-noir is yeah it's a great example and i do i do want to go back to dan hedaya for a second too that he mm -hmm. uh when i growing up i did not love dan hedaya he i don't know what it was just something maybe it was but you love like, commando uh, <laughs> I do love Commando. <laughs> I think that's the performance I was. I like, do as well. Is this guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he was in so uh, many movies. I mean, look at the range from Blood Simple to Commando to Alien Resurrection to Clueless. Like Clueless he is yeah. all over the place. And Usual Suspects. Like he pops up in so many movies. And I think David wasn't he? Was he on Cheers? Yeah, he played he played Nick, uh, uh, Carla's ex husband, and he's like right. He, and he's very and it's a very much a character part. He's very he's very odd and talks talks a little <laughs> funny and and yeah. he's basically <laughs> a scumbag. And they're madly in love with each other <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he pops up all the time in that in that show. That's when that's where I knew him primarily. I didn't until I was and then I'd see all these movies and I was like, geez, he's all he was all over the place. Yeah, but I'd seen so many episodes of Cheers growing up before I was watching these films. So. But he's a like he's such a great actor too because he's done so many different roles and yeah 
it's, I don't know. He, he just falls right into them. Like he's like not the same from guy. commando to clueless. They could, while being starting with the same letter, like they couldn't be further <laughs> opposite films <laughs> and he's memorable and does a great job in, in all of them, everything that he's in. And, and this yeah. was like, again, this time it just jumped out. Like I love him in this. And how did the Coen brothers not work with him more? Yeah. Maybe, maybe, just busy. maybe in the sequel. Maybe in the sequel. Blood Simple 2. But comes Blood out simpler. and around. <laughs> even more just a hand. <laughs> yeah, the hand. That's the start of the movie. His 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 skeleton hand pops out of the, the ground. The the, uh, the, Fran- the the brace is on his finger. You're like, oh, it's him. <laughs> <laughs> and Francis is waiting there with like a shotgun. Like, <laughs> you're back. <laughs> <laughs> Has nothing to do with blood. <laughs> it's nothing like the original blood. Symbol. She's like, took you long enough. Get in the car. <laughs> and it's a, it's like a buddy heist, buddy we, we heist got work movie. To do. We got, <laughs> we got to go find Ray. What? <laughs> I thought he was dead. He's dead. When I looked over, his body was gone. <laughs> Forty know, that's years my later, for it. must must be seen. Yeah. It's writing itself right now on the podcast. Yeah, we're uh, you know I'm pretty our, sure this our, is how Joel and Ethan did it. Our other <laughs> podcast, Unnecessary Sequels, is is dropping uh, very soon. So this is the first episode. <laughs> the short-lived podcast. It's one episode. Let's talk about was our, Blood Simple Two. What was our other podcast? The arithmetic arithmetic podcast. That yeah. We, oh. yeah, yeah. We're Those busy. are for the Matthews. Those are that's for the Matthews. Yep. The Matthews. Cinematics. I don't know. Are any of these characters, though, are any of them sympathetic? Is she? Are you guys sympathetic? Do you feel sympathetic for her character, for Abby? They're all all deceivers, right? They're all bad. In one way or another, right? Yeah. Just Maurice. Just Maurice. Yeah. Yeah, He's just trying to run the bar. Yeah. Yeah. And he's getting blamed for stealing the cash. (laughs) <laughs> that's a dick move yeah that's yeah ridiculous because he is actually a, like a normal good human being it seems like you know he's just working earning his living and stuck in the middle of all this annoying nonsense yeah, yeah. but julian yeah. you're right brent julian on the voicemail like just totally puts the missing money on maurice yeah, yeah oh yeah i'm not saying you did it but money's gone now and you were there <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I, I really want to talk to you about it. It's like, what? Yeah. I would, I would argue that Ray is probably the most sympathetic of the, of the men only. Cause he, he just, if he just walked away, he'd be fine. But he, you know, he's just trying to resolve things and I, I get it. He, but he, he, he thought, he like, thought he was dead. And then he made, he made the choice to bury him alive. Like, it's a hard sell, man. He he slept with the lady that he knew was his boss's wife. Yeah, yeah, like he he yeah. up and like just <laughs> instead of like asking questions, just straight up like pulls the body who he thinks is dead and goes to try and bury it. I, I, no, I don't feel sympathy for this dude. Uh, yeah. like, sorry, not happening. Yeah, no, no, you're Why right. Why didn't it's... he just dump the body in the incinerator? Why didn't he just leave the I, fucking body where it was yeah, and call the cops? That... Because then you don't yep. have a movie. Yeah, don't have a movie. 
Exactly. Well, you just have Fran getting arrested or whatever, right? Yeah. In his head, maybe, but like, did she may have had an alibi? We don't know where she was. But that's that's. I mean, that's the thing is, did he suspect that she killed him? Because well, that's the whole thing does. because he yeah. found yeah. the gun because of the gun. Oh, right, her right. gun. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And I I did know that at the time, but as we're reflecting on it, I forgot that detail. Yeah, and then so he he thinks it's I did. her. <laughs> no, I believe that. I'm just laughing because Maurice is definitely the only dude in here I feel sympathy for. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Maurice is 100%. the only one. Yeah. Even his his date. The yeah, maybe the, the blonde the lady at the bar. Take. Maybe the blonde lady at the bar who's like like hanging out with Maurice. Like maybe those two, but other other than those two, nah. Yeah, nah, that's a good point. Um, I want to go back to Barry Sonnenfeld, uh, the DP, for for a minute. Um, I feel like the best work of his career was as a DP with the Coen Brothers. That as as an artist, three, you know, right? he did the first three. Yeah, he did the first three. I prefer um, all the work he did contributing to the sound design of this movie. Yeah, there there was that. Yeah, so he was so nervous. This was his first movie as well. So everybody's a first timer here. He was just like visibly nervous and was was throwing up like at Video Village and the audio of when when Dan Hedaya gets, you know, when Francis McDormand kicks him in the, the groin and he throws up on the front lawn. The audio from that is Barry Sonnenfeld. Oh, yeah, wow. he's he's literally credited in IMDb as Marty's vomiting. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you can look it up. Like it's there. Yeah, and that's uh... freaking hilarious because you know one of the Coens was like, "Yeah, let's put this in." That's hilarious. <laughs> I can't imagine being that nervous like during filming. Like I get it when the movie's screening and audiences are, are you know seeing it for the first time. Totally get it there, but while you're filming, I don't know. But it's it's beautiful. It's visually beautiful, and you know uh, he went on and became a, a big director and did some big movies like Get Shorty and Men in Black, uh, Wild Wild West. Uh, but mm-hmm. <laughs> Santa Fe, not in the Santa College Fe of Santa Fe. R.I.P. Yeah, R.I.P. That was uh, <laughs> a title you couldn't speak of after they got done after they burned down one of the uh, the oh, western yeah, towns. Sucks. Oh. I used to love that yeah. TV series, man. I wish I could. I, I'm gonna have to find that. You call I my dad. I bet he's watching it. I I bet it's not good and doesn't hold up and probably <laughs> ripe with things that are inappropriate. But I <laughs> I remember liking it as a kid. Yeah. Um. So where where do you think the movie stands today? It uh. You know, do modern audiences? Do you feel like there's they would connect with this movie now if they rediscovered it. I mean, it's timeless. Like I feel movies. like, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's exactly it. Like if you want to watch a good movie, you know, like I don't think there's anything in here that really takes you out of it. Like not even like the locations or the vehicles or anything like that. Like you can imagine that in like some small town in Texas, there's going to be old vehicle. Like, I don't even think, yeah, you know, like I think it all, works really well like like i said at the beginning of the movie or the beginning of the podcast i love i love it when i finally get around to watching movies that that have been great and i i you know like have just never been on my radar so you know i think i think it's good 
and the craft of it is is excellent you know right just everything the the way it's shot the way it's sound designed the way it's scripted the way it's performed i mean Mm -hmm. the craftsmanship in it is just better than a lot of stuff we see now even with no money and first timers it's a film school unto itself yeah Yeah. Yeah, it is a good way to put it Instead of paying to go to film school, get someone to give you one and a half million dollars, and then you just make a movie. That's 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 the route. Film. You know what? Too. Yep. A good film school would be people should pay us to come over to their house, and we'll watch Blood Simple with them and <laughs> talk them through it. About, this right. is why this is brilliant. You know. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. The we traveling. Can, we film can school. Mortimer, Mortimer Young it for them, Jonathan. Oh, yeah, we're coming to back. We're coming around to Mortimer Young. <laughs> uh, yeah, my barometer is is my kids who you know watch a lot of the, the movies with me that we're covering for the show, and they're very much in tune with what is inappropriate today and what you know doesn't you know whether it's treatment of women, how race is dealt with in, in film. They're very much in tune with that. But this, they're like, it's like, what do you think? Uh, loved it. It's amazing. Like they just. <laughs> They were okay. totally into it, and and uh, I think they appreciated the modern. I, I sometimes I think they like modern noir, neo noir more than traditional film noir. I mean, they like Double Indemnity and a couple of the others, but only like the high level noir films is what they really have taken to so far. So, but I think the neo stuff, stuff like this, I think they're more more into that. Um, there's a little more visual, you know. Lighting wise, there was a lot happening in, in traditional noir, but camera moves, camera angles, there's much more to work with at this point in time. So, um, yeah, I think uh, modern audiences absolutely would still would still connect with this film. And, you know, the, the modern, well, somewhat modern, I guess it's not modern now, but there was a re-release in 2000 that was, uh, I guess it was the 15th anniversary, but... Um, that so that came out in theaters and then they, the dvd came out after that but what my favorite part of that was the cone brothers shot an opening to it that was the character of mortimer young and forever young films that was a fake film historian who introduces the film and, and is explaining that the uh you know digital restoration that they did and uh that you know, they, they also cut out the bad parts of the movie and added some new good parts in. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> if you, I don't know if it's on like the, the uh, Criterion or, you know, whatever other DVD versions are out there now, but the one that came out then, it, it's on that. So, and it's on YouTube. So, I mean, I watched and the I Criterion on, on Max and it was not on that. Yeah. I mean, it might be uh, on the DVD, I, but yeah. I I don't and I don't even know if they produce it anymore. I could be wrong, but I I think I still have that DVD. I have like four versions of this movie. It's like I have the <laughs> Blu-ray and then the DVD and then the Criterion and the VHS somewhere at home. You have the, the Betamax Alamo, but... tape too. <laughs> the Laserdisc. No, the I don't laser have the Laserdisc. You might, John, somewhere. <laughs> Not um, this one. I have Fargo and Lebowski. <laughs> um, but uh, that Mortimer Young thing is so funny and. He does a commentary for the entire movie on the yeah. DVD. Yep. At, at, at one, and it's like, it, it's the most bizarre, funny thing. 
at one point it's like the when Dan Hedaya is trying to kidnap uh, Francis McDormand, the, the you know the dogs in that scene, and he goes, and this dog is animatronic, and he starts talking about the <laughs> animatronic dog. It's been a long. I mean, I probably haven't seen it since two thousand one, so I don't remember, but I vaguely remember them talking about an the dog being animatronic in this commentary, and it was like. <laughs> I mean, it's meant to be comedic, right? Like the commentary, is it like a mystery, mystery science theater, 3000, like commentary type thing? It's it's like they scripted the uh, the absurdity, the most absurd (laughs) things that he could say about the movie. Well, it's like, it's like Spinal, the Spinal Tap DVD. There's a DVD of Spinal Tap that they do the audio commentary in character. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's it's almost like a satire, but yeah, that it's genius. Uh, yeah, it's it's well worth watching or listening to uh, if you can get your hands on that that version of the DVD. Um, all right, remember, should we? Uh, I remember being at Devargas Devargas when we used to work at Devargas, or maybe it was after we were done there. But I was at Devargas when that re-release was out, and a guy walked out of the theater and he goes, "Man, those guys can write." even back then and then he just walked out he just said that to me and i was like okay i was just standing in the lobby it was it was, it was a moment it was a moment i will not forget yeah that's funny and that man so where does it so where does Steven this Spielberg. one yeah <laughs> it was Spielberg, actually. it was gene hackman we used to always see him yeah uh so where does this one rank uh in your list of favorite Coen Brothers films. Where where does this one rank for you guys? I like this movie a lot. I I probably would watch. I I think uh, it's it's below the top five, I guess for me. But it's I, it's hard for me to say. I'm not a, a Coen head. I, I wow. I just I just came <laughs> up. With it. Uh, I'm not a Coen head. Um, but I I've seen I, I I'm looking at the list. I'm like, boy, I've seen a lot of their films, and I there's just so many I enjoyed so much that I probably have a better. I have more of a you know kinship too or just really like a lot so but i mean i can't deny the the foundational property of this film and and it it's i'm glad i it added one more of their of their uh set um you know so i, I there's a few only a few more i have to see and then i um I'll, but uh yeah probably not my top five but but does, i'm not trying to diminish its quality whatsoever by saying that jared what about you uh, today, my top four Coen Brother films are in no particular order: Fargo, No Country for Old Men, Blood Simple, and Big Lebowski. Ask Me Tomorrow might be slightly different, but that's that's the four. Awesome. And I do, and and I will say I do love them all. I don't love a couple. A couple are okay with some funny moments in them, but which is your which is your least favorite Coen film? I think I know the answer, but. Lady Killers and Intolerable Cruelty. Oh, really? I thought you were going to say Hail Caesar. Hmm. I've only seen it once, and it's the only one that I've only seen once. So it's probably in there. Yeah. In the, the that that group, but I would like to revisit that at some point. It is kind of shocking that I've only seen it once. I would have to admit. I've seen it zero times because oh. when it came out. Or right after it came out, I checked in with you, and you were like, "Eh." So I was like, mm, "Not gonna it's rush kinda, to watch it." That but. that that was my review. Eh. Yeah, it's I like the poster. I, it. I yeah. like Tail Caesar, but that's the same review. 
That's the same review I got from Jared for Lewin Davis, and that's why I haven't watched that. Oh, <laughs> liar. No, that's not, dude. Like, I asked I you. I love Lewin Davis. I don't know if you rules. liked it at first. Did you like it all from the beginning? I'm positive yeah. you were like, oh, it's not really one of their stronger ones. You probably said something <sighs> like, oh, it's not really one of the strong ones. I liked it, but I don't know. You know what? You know what it was is here's here's how I told people about it. I really liked it, but I could see people not liking it. Yeah, I think that was kind I'm of my surprised. review. It that may be it. That that may be around there. I'm sure at the time when you gave me that review, I probably uh, had a couple beers, so I made some of that up. I'm sure, but <laughs> but nonetheless, I'm surprised that I haven't gone back to watch it just because I do love the soundtrack a lot and i listened to it for a time i was listening to it kind of on repeat for for a while and so uh so i'm i will eventually get to it this having watched blood simple has like kind of rekindled a a desire for me to go back and watch and rewatch some of the some of the coen brothers stuff because i haven't really done that in in a while and um I don't know where this one, I don't know where blood simple necessarily ranks like with, with all of them. I, I would say that it is a great movie, uh, but I think like from those first eight movies, they're all kind of great. They're all a little bit different. They all kind of stand alone and they could all be watched like kind of multiple times. Right. I mean, I, it, it would be, it would be hard. So uh, so I don't know exactly where I, where I rank it. I, I would definitely watch it again. It's great. But I think this is going to get me to watch Lewin Davis now, finally, because um, I think you should I put it off for a while. Yeah, I, I that that's another one that I'd like to revisit, although I I have seen that one multiple times. I think the only one that I haven't seen multiple times, seriously, is Hail Caesar, John. Yeah, I buy, buy it. it up. I buy it. Give it a shot, though. Anybody see the tragedy of Macbeth? Because that's another one of theirs that I have not seen. Well, it's not theirs. It's it's Joel Cohen. It's not. That's the first one without Ethan. Okay. So so then we got to get technical. But that's uh, fair. And then then Ethan's first film without Joel, I think, is coming out in twenty four. The driveway. Yeah, it's coming out. Yeah. Is that that one? That one looks. I, I I look. I'm looking forward to that one. The uh, for me, Blood Simple is probably somewhere in the six, seven, eight zone. And again, same thing as you, Jared. Like, depends what day of the week it is. You know, my opinion might change. But Fargo, Lebowski, uh, I would say, No Country for Old Men for sure. I like Serious Man and Burn After Reading a lot. Um, and that's not to say, and, and oh brother, where art thou? Like those are all amazing, and and even Miller's Crossing too is very good. Yeah, mm-hmm. Miller's Raising Arizona. It's like they're all right, real close together. So to say Blood Simple is like down at number eight is actually quite an amazing compliment. That everything above it is just like incredible films that your roster is that strong that you you know, you still have great films in the eight, nine, 10 spot. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. The first time we watched Miller's crossing, sorry, Brent, I was just, no, I do. This. We're going to, we'll hold that story. If we even air it <laughs> um, for our Miller's crossing episode. Ooh, I can't oh, wait. Oh, spicy. Mm, we're definitely, we're definitely going to record Miller's crossing. <laughs> that's definitely that, that story is coming up. Yeah. 
we'll have to you know we'll have to definitely continue our our cohen fest here and we'll have to uh look at the 2024 lineup and see where raising arizona is going to uh where we can slide that in but definitely need to to do that one soon yeah um and then we'll work our way towards because miller's is number three right yeah it's yeah, simple, i think that's the last one i think that's the last one sonnenfeld shot and then deacons took over after that yeah deacons took over with barton fink barton fink deacons. yeah yep oh, i love him well i uh, love him so much yeah i he's yes i'm a fan I was fortunate enough to be able to work with him on a couple projects and he's as awesome as you would imagine and better because he's actually great at what he does and he's not a dick about it. So, you know, it's like, yeah, he's, 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 he's really top cool. notch. Yeah. Well, should we uh, take a look at the box office, a little box office glory here? Yes, sir. Blood Simple was shot in Texas in the fall of 1982. They cut it together in, in 1983, did the whole festival circuit in 1984. Uh, it is released. It's sort of a limited release, but it's theatrical release is technically January 18th, 1985. Uh, it opens up against a movie called That's Dancing, which never heard of ne- it, never heard of it either. Uh, and there's really there's because it was a, a limited release, like there's not a lot of box office info out there. Um, it uh, it did have a one point five million dollar budget. Its total domestic run was one point seven. It brought in another million internationally, so it had a two point seven million dollar run, but really got a lot of critical acclaim. It got the Coen Brothers names out there and really started their career. So maybe not a box office success, but definitely, you know, uh, it's the launching pad for them. And it, uh, as we mentioned, it was re-released in, in July of 2000, uh, in a, a lim- another limited anniversary release. And then the DVD came out, but, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of competition in 1985 top, uh, top at the box office was back to the future. First blood Rambo part two. Is that right? Or did I say, did I say that backwards? Is it for, for Rambo? What do they call first, it? First, blood, Rambo? first blood Rambo. Is it First Blood Rambo 2? No, Rambo First Blood. Fuck, I it's don't know, First man. Blood 2? No, first it's not. It's, it is Rambo in there. There is a Rambo. It's fucking <laughs> confusing, man. It's Rambo First Blood Part 2. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah Rambo, Rambo First Colin. Blood Part 2. That's what we all said. It's exactly Jesus what John. I said. Lies. And... Uh, <laughs> Rocky Four, which, by the way, I, I hey, smell yo. Rocky Four right around the corner for us. So hmm. uh, those were those were the top three at the box office. You say you smell Rocky Four right around the corner. Smell it coming. It's, it's coming it's our not. way. That doesn't mm-hmm. sound right. It's, it's Rocky, sweaty. Maybe Rocky smelling. smells good. Definitely mm. moist. <laughs> sweaty Russians. That's what I sweaty. think of. That's a great it's smell. A, it's a, glistening a wet movie. Glistening. Wet movie. Listen, if he dies, he dies. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, but the, you know, obviously, a huge, huge movie. We talked, we mentioned, I think we mentioned all this, but uh, uh, not just a launching point for them, but also for Frances McDormand. That, um, and I think it was a bit of a slow burn for her that she didn't really, she's incredible in this. This is, I don't know, like still one of my favorite performances of hers. 
but she doesn't really take off and become a household name till till Fargo, right? She kind of she kind of floats, I think, around for she does. Uh, she does get some awards recognition for uh, Mississippi Burning, I want to say, right? Um, That's but right. Yeah, yeah, but it's but it's still she doesn't blow up until Fargo, I would say. Yeah, she doesn't uh... become Queen Francis until then. But she's just, she's in Dark Man. She's in Raising. I was going to say Dark Man. That's where yeah. I that's where I really first took <laughs> notice. Yeah, and I think it's good for you know John Getz, another one we we spoke about. I, I still not sure why his career didn't you know go further and he become more of a name, but he stayed in more of the character actor realm, which is kind of a shame because I think he could have done more. Um, and M. Emmett Walsh just added to the list of great roles. So I think it's time. Do we need to? We need to come back to our six degrees of reconsideration. Yeah, we're just oh, I always with. forget about this. I'm gonna any way you any way at least for me any way I cut it. I'm going Holly Hunter. So uh, you could either take Holly Hunter as the voice on Blood Simple. I'll take it to M. Emmett uh, as as in Blood Simple to Raising Arizona, which also has Holly Hunter in it. Holly Hunter in Broadcast News, which has John Cusack. John Cusack is in 16 Candles. So that's, that's, my, that's my way of getting there. Always right. back to John Cusack, who everybody who listens to the podcast knows I adore completely. Absolutely. <laughs> See our One Crazy Summer episode. <laughs> <laughs> Brent's love for Cusack. Well, I was listening no, I have, to I have Halloween love for him. Six I... recently, okay. and Paul Rudd is one of my loves. So, yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, but Jared, cool. it was awesome having you back here. You know, you joined us this summer for Dead Heat. I want to personally, you know, we want to invite you back for. We've got a holiday film coming up, which you're in your household you? very familiar with. Uh, a little film called While You Were Sleeping. So we. Oh, baby, let's do yeah. it. All right, good. Sweet. <laughs> Excellent. Hey, we'll talk buddy. about how many times you've let's seen that movie. <laughs> One million. <laughs> My wife and daughter uh, love it, as do I. Yeah. Well, we, uh, <laughs> we've got a great holiday lineup coming up. So stay tuned for that. We're going to have a lot of fun. We'll have Jared's going to rejoin us. We're going to have another special guest. It's going to be really fantastic. So stay tuned for that. Thank you all for, uh, for having me on. It's always a damned pleasure. Love you guys. You yeah. want to sing, you want to sing us out with a little Oasis? <laughs> <laughs> we must talk about Oasis every time I do this. <laughs> that's, that's well, maybe next, way. maybe next time. I I foresee a big Oasis discussion coming soon. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> we can't uh, hold our... the floodgates back any further. <laughs> it's going to be the a dam, champagne. The dam supernova. is going to break. Well, you know, if you want to hear another another episode with Jared, where, where Jared joined us, check out our archives at Reconsideration for a Dead Heat episode, uh, and check out any of our amazing uh, episodes there. We're on social media at Reconsideration Podcast. And a quick shout out and thank you to our friends E.K. Wimmer for the theme music and Curtis Moore for the poster. And that wraps up November. We will see you guys next time for our hol- the beginning of our holiday episodes of Reconsidimation. Take care. Bye now.
Good evening. I'm Mortimer Young. Fifteen years ago, Blood Simple was released around the world, garnering universal critical acclaim, shattering box office records, and ushering in the era of the independent cinema. Unfortunately, filmographic techniques were in their infancy. Now, through the miracle of digital technology and ultra-ultrasound, a Lucas process, they no longer are. Yes, it was a marvelous period, worthy of preservation and preserved it has been. Our hands have not been idle. Through the diligent efforts of many brilliant technicians, this exquisite masterpiece has been digitally swabbed, the boring parts have been taken out, and other things added. Join us, then, for a magnificent film, digitally enhanced and tastefully restored, Blood Simple, Forever Young, Forever Young.